How's it going, Publius? Doing quite well, Mod. Back, glad to be back in class. How are you? All is well here and 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 same. Um, I see that we Harry already dropped some questions about wells, and I was thinking that we maybe dedicate this class and expand on on wells a bit, or have it to be the topic of discussion. Um, and Publius, maybe we can first of all start with how did the idea of wells come about? Uh, what is the problem or problems uh, that you know wells uh, aim to solve? And then maybe lastly, what are the phases or the versions or the roadmap that we can expect you know wells to, to go about? So we know that now uh, it was announced that you know wells are being reviewed or the code for wells is currently being reviewed by contributors, and at a later stage it will be um, reviewed by Halborn, and then hopefully we'll have version one one out there. But maybe we can first of all start. What? How did this idea come about? So there's a a real problem with interoperability in current AMMs, which Beanstalk has experienced firsthand, uh, and we've experienced while working on Beanstalk, in that using the liquidity that is in a Uniswap pool or a Curve pool uh, for the silo has not been such a simple process typically. And this has to do with the amount of information that is stored on chain in those various protocols pools. And in short, the perhaps very beginning of the need to implement a Beanstalk native DEX came from that specific problem that in order for Beanstalk to be able to use liquidity in a given liquidity pool, it needs certain information. And that information was not typically easily accessible to the protocol. And given the nature of a curve factory pool deployment, for example, uh, even there, I mean, there have been many discussions in the past on uh, adding other liquidity pools and how, in particular, the current structure of Curve and Uniswap limit tremendously the amount of assets that can trade against beans and be used within the silo. And so that's, that was the starting point where there was some need to implement, uh, at least at a minimum, uh, a Beanstalk native DEX or a DEX that would support natively a Beanstalk integration such that the, the silo could accept the deposits and minting can take place off of the liquidity in the pool. And the where, where, what that evolved into, uh, and in our case, we are not really interested in implementing tech that is going to be used one-off and then thrown away. The goal is to implement stuff that is sufficiently generalized and of sufficient quality that it's reusable in perpetuity. We don't want to be doing work that is in practice in the grand scheme of things meaningless. We want to be doing work that is helpful to where we're going because there's so much work to do to get where we're going that the question is then how do we get there? And the the decks is a major part of of DeFi and the current state of DEXs in general, aside from just 
not being particularly easable, easily integrable into Beanstalk, uh, current DEXs are, are lacking uh, at best. And therefore, uh, well, maybe not therefore, but let's talk a little bit about where they're lacking. So in particular, the, the decentralized exchange as a concept is where trading activity happens. And if you think about what it would mean for DeFi to ultimately compete with TradFi, the ability to trade in a competitive venue to centralized alternatives is a necessary part of the puzzle. And current implementations of DEXs uh, even the state of the yard or top of the line, whatever you want to say, curve, Uniswap, uh, they are not even close to being able to compete with traditional finance trading experiences. And to a large extent, this is because of the nature of the networks that they trade on. Uh, and there may be two, two problems. One is that there's a cost to updating orders, which is expensive for market makers. But more than that, the concept of minor extractable value, uh, whereby if there is a potential profit to be extracted by uh, the miners of the network, in order to pro if an order wasn't processed or an update to an order wasn't processed or a transaction isn't processed, then in theory, the miners should be the ones that can extract the value associated with that transaction as opposed to the person that wants to pay to execute the transaction. And so then the question is, well, how much would the person be willing to pay to execute the transaction up to whatever the minor extractable value is? And so maybe you have a happy middle ground where there's some split or fee between the miners and the, the users. But in practice, the existence of MEV uh, makes it such that you really can't update your orders. You're not going to be able to update uh, your orders. So if you're a, a market maker, the this becomes a major problem because from a theoretical perspective, what market makers are really trying to do is maximize how much uh, non-toxic flow they receive. And non-toxic flow can be thought of as directional trades, trades that express a direction in the market meaning people are buying and selling not for arbitrage, uh, but actually to buy a given asset, uh, those directional trades are considered non-toxic flow and are the, the flow that market makers want to maximize exposure to. Uh, you juxtapose that with toxic flow, which is effectively arbitrage. So there's some mispricing in a given market relative to the market at large, and toxic flow can be thought of as the trade that gets the market price back to the, the or the the yeah the market price back to the price of the the aggregate market and if you think about the nature of current AMMs they rely on the latter which is toxic flow they rely on arbitrage in order to maintain their price at the market price so while you can reasonably expect the price that you're getting on Curve or on Uniswap to be very, very close to the market price, uh, the way that the price in the pool is actually maintained relative to the market price at large 
is typically some arbitrage or trading against the market. So these markets assume or require toxic flow in order to offer a competitive price to then potentially receive non-toxic flow. But the problem for market makers in these liquidity pools is that the the updating of their orders to avoid toxic flow. So if the ETH price moves uh, on centralized exchanges, there's no actual way for them to update their prices in the liquidity pools on chain without exposing themselves to MEV, at which point they can't actually uh, prevent themselves from receiving the the toxic flow. And so there have been some pretty good uh, Twitter threads over the past couple months uh, on the toxic flow problem in AMMs, and in particular how uh, it's really not profitable to p- provide liquidity to these AMMs. And if you think about, again, the goal being for decentralized finance to com- be able to compete with traditional finance, uh, if market makers cannot profitably make money by providing liquidity on decentralized exchanges, it's unlikely that these decentralized exchanges are going to acquire significant amounts of liquidity and liquidity begets more liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. And so if, if the, the market makers that are providing the initial liquidity cannot make money, then it's going to be really hard for DEXs to accrue the liquidity necessary to compete with traditional finance. So uh, again, the, the two problems are one, the cost to update orders, but but the real problem is that the orders cannot be updated in practice in order to avoid the toxic flow. So with this in mind, uh, and the fact that it was necessary for a new DEX to be implemented, or at least uh, an updated DEX to be implemented in order to support Beanstalk, uh, Wells became a, a necessary project. And w- with all of this in mind, the basic idea behind Wells, or what Wells should uh, be able to support, are arbitrary uh, liquidity pools. And what that means is that the prices over which the assets that are provided to the liquidity pool can be exchanged for other assets can A, be arbitrary curves, meaning they can uh, have any sort of pricing curve on them, uh, which is uh, tech that was originally developed for the pod marketplace. Uh, But B, and this is where the answer to the MEV problem comes in, the inputs to the curves themselves can be arbitrary. So they can be functions, they can be uh, data, on-chain data, such that in practice, there is no need to ever update an order unless a strategy for providing liquidity has changed. Because the wells themselves should support the ability to encode entire trading strategies in a single well where the the liquidity effectively and the prices that the liquidity is willing to be traded for within the well are changing in real time. Uh, and by real time, I guess we mean block time. So whenever a trade against a liquidity pool happens, the trade is obviously taking into account the current state of the network on which the transaction is being mined and it's being traded against the well 
and the well itself is also taking into account uh, the current state of the network. And so there, there is, at least in theory, the ability to encode in wells sufficiently sophisticated strategies such that uh, toxic flow can be, or exposure to toxic flow can be uh, deeply mitigated. So it's not to say that you can get around all the toxic flow, but you can get around a real chunk of it. And that's the basic idea behind wealth. Okay. Um, Publis, I'm going to try to summarize um, what, what you j just described. And what, you, what, what you're describing as toxic flow, is it correct to call that impermanent loss? Uh, no. So to clarify, impermanent loss is the change in the value of liquidity provided to a liquidity pool based on the change in the price of the pool. Uh, toxic flow has to do with the nature of the trade itself that moves the ratio in the pool. So uh, a liquidity provider could receive impermanent loss uh, from toxic flow or from non-toxic flow, but they're they're actually different. Okay, all right. Let's let's maybe uh, then uh, try to expand on on toxic flow. So when when the price of an asset changes, um, and because you know the AMM um, does not rely on Oracle, it just relies on a ratio, uh, you know, of of the curve in it. Um, and then you know the price of an asset changes, so then you rely on arbitragers to bring down you know the the price or the ratio of the pool back to the market price, and and when that happens, this arbitrage is the toxic flow in the sense that the liquidity providers lose you know some value or a value of their asset in the sense that they sell it you know maybe less than uh, what the market price is 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 that correct? Well, in, in this example, the toxic flow is the the trade that brings the amm price back to the market price because the market price has moved and there's some risk-free trade that can be made by an arbitrager to sell let's say the price moved down so you can sell it in the pool and buy it on a centralized exchange uh so there's no risk in the trade assuming that you execute the trades at the same time uh and and in doing so you move the price in the AMM back to the market price, that's toxic flow because there was no need for the trade to take place uh, necessarily, but the, the, the trade taking place is, is the AMM giving up a bad price. So the market price has already moved and now the person that is collecting the arbitrage is getting like a, a price that is by definition better than the real price and that's what makes it toxic flow. Okay. <clears throat> so let's say let's take an example um, and say we have a USDC ETH pool, for example, um, and then um, and 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 that and that pool is on Uniswap, um, and then the price of ETH uh, increases, um, you know, in the market, uh, but that's not reflected in the pool yet. So then um, arbitragers would come and buy the ETH for cheap because it's now it's still you know cheaper than the market price until uh, the pool balances in a certain ratio that you know then then the price of eth becomes equal to the market price this this um, trade or these trades that that move the the price or the ratio of the pool 
to bring the price of ETH back to the market price is toxic flow. Is that correct? Exactly. And if maybe oh. it would be helpful to juxtapose that against non-toxic flow, which would be if the pr price in the AMM is at the market price and there is some trade in the AMM where price discovery is actually happening in the AMM. So the market price is already there. And now the person that is trading again, or the user that is trading against the, the AMM is actually contributing to price discovery. That would be an example of non-toxic flow. Okay. And maybe we can also quickly go through how current AMMs uh, work. And, and in a way, they just follow a certain you know, curve. And that curve depends on the ratio of the two assets, uh, or maybe if you know, there are multiple assets, or the two assets that, that are in the pool. So um, Uniswap curve and you know, the likes uh, of, of current, let's say, um, um, AMMs, or the, the popular ones, is that they don't use any oracles. So the way that they find out a price or they find price discovery is just basically purely upon the ratio of the two assets that are in the pool. And then Wells, uh, as you described, is that um, it, it, it won't only rely on you know, um, um, just a pricing curve. It can have uh, arbitrary different you know, inputs uh, that then determine what the price of, of, the, of the assets uh, are. Does that mean that then Wells will require an Oracle, uh, Publius? So not necessarily. Uh, in fact, and we'll get to talking about the implementations of Wells, but the, the first version of Well will just be a basic bean ETH pool, uh, constant product pool that has all the same problems uh, associated with it uh, as, as Uniswap or Curve. Now, it, it's worth saying Curve V2 is an attempt to integrate... A couple of things are worth saying. Curve V2 is an attempt to integrate uh, an oracle into the pricing function such that uh, the AMM can actually move based on other data, in this case, the oracle, uh, but it's not particularly generalized. And the, the other thing that's worth commenting on is that there is probably uh, an upgrade to the network itself, in this case, Ethereum, uh, that would really help in terms of MEV, where where if at the beginning of every block, uh, oracles were updated before transactions were sent, that would that would enable the integration between these AMMs and their oracles, and basically get the get the lag or the the potential toxic flow from a lag in the oracles updating down to zero because the oracles would be updated at the beginning of the blocks. Um, but to talk more about just wells themselves, the concept is the wells can, orders in wells can be a function of oracles, but the oracle doesn't necessarily need to be off-chain data. So in particular, when you think about the beanstalk economy, uh, there's all sorts of data that exists on-chain with regards to beanstalk that may in fact be the thing that determines the prices of the orders. So if you if you imagine like a stock uh, pool where stock is being traded, the price at which people are willing to trade stock may be dependent on the silo yield, or may be dependent on the price of a bean, or may be dependent on a variety of other things that stock is a derivative of in many ways, and therefore 
if the data exists on chain, you don't have this this Oracle delay problem. But in the case where you want like the price of Ether on all markets, uh, that would be something that would be much better if the Oracle was updated at the beginning of the block as opposed to at random times. Or uh, like in Chainlink's case, it updates the Oracle price dependent on the the distance of the, the ETH price from the last price. So if it moves like half a percentage point or something like that, uh, I believe is the way the Oracle works. So there is built into those types of ways to update the Oracle some uh, acceptable uh, lag or acceptable uh, misinformation, let's call it, which could be mitigated entirely through an upgrade to the network. And then... Um... In theory, is the idea that wells can, you know, uh, or the or the price of the assets that are traded in the wells be a function of multiple, um, let's say, inputs. So one would be depending on the ratio of the assets that are in there, and also the the depending on the price oracle. So it's multiple multiple inputs. Uh, in theory, that is possible. Although, what's more likely to be the case is that a well is loaded up with one or more assets and then given curves uh, over which those assets can be exchanged for other assets and the curves themselves take in uh, let's call it oracles or, or other data over which to process but it's like the nature of wells is such that each well will be unique to the set of curves over which things can be traded and therefore like the way you were talking about it almost makes it seem like it's one big well that is being updated from an Oracle as opposed to uh, that, that may be how people experience trading against wells or trading through wells because the liquidity is aggregated in aqueducts. But at the individual well level, it's more likely that the orders themselves are uh, somewhat taken effectively arbitrary inputs and process them at the, at the individual curve level. Okay. Um, Want to go back again to the example um, of the USDC ETH pool and, and maybe say how will that you know be like in a, in a well? Uh, and the reason we're using USDC here is just the idea that you know we're, we're imagining a hard peg um, or or or, a, or you know USDC is always equal to one. Um, and 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 in this example now, you know, uh, we go back again that the price of ETH in, increased or it went up. Um, would would this well then, in theory, be able to reflect you know the change in price and also account you know the ratio of the different assets? And as you said, it will be the input will be one thing, but that one thing could be a function of multiple things. So it will first of all look at what is the price of ETH, and then also check what are the ratios in the in the in the pool, and you know as a liquidity provider. Uh, how much you know of ETH I have left, and then also what is the price of ETH, and then eventually gives a price to you know the traders or whoever wants to trade against the well. Is is that an accurate? Yes, that, that that would be possible. Now it's just worth saying that there would have to be some oracle with the price of ether that the well is using. But yes, that is certainly possible. Okay, all right. From here, maybe then Publius, we can go to to talk a bit about. The, the oracles um, or, or or how you know do you imagine or we imagine uh, wells will will utilize oracles you said it or you're thinking that it can be you know any any will it be first of all an any arbitrary you know um, oracle that can be used or um, 
sorry, before going to the oracles, maybe maybe we'll ask another question. Will the liquidity providers to a well have and choose their own inputs uh, into the same well, or will each well have a set or a predefined way on how it calculates, um, you know, the prices, and then everyone that's providing liquidity into that well will follow will follow that those rules? It's the latter. So each well is effectively the encoding of a a strategy, and that strategy can can be arbitrary, as we've already discussed. But it's not going to be that multiple strategies are added to the same well. Okay. And then do you imagine that a trader would, you know, you will find an aggregate um, of those, you know, th uh, the same asset across multiple wells or would a trader have to choose Correct. a well? All right. Well, well, the, the trader shouldn't, the trader can specify the wells they want to trade against uh, in theory, but uh, that would be a pretty horrible hope is for aqueducts to aggregate the liquidity that can be accessed and for people to just trade against all of the wells at once okay all right going back now to the oracle um uh, topic a bit uh, and you touched upon uh, you touched upon it a little bit you know with the mev um um, um you know discussion how, how do you foresee what kind of an oracle do you foresee wells utilizing and you know how how will that be used and maybe what are the current challenges with oracles in general um today so from from our perspective it's unlikely that the beanstalk uh native wells or the wells that uh used the wells that are providing liquidity for the silo uh, are unlikely to need oracles. Now, there's an interesting question that is posed here around what what will be the acceptable well to deposit in the silo? And if a well uses an oracle, would that necessarily prevent that well from being used to deposit liquidity into the silo? And I think to some extent it's unclear but it's it's unlikely that the use of oracles would prevent liquidity from being added to the silo. It's just that the 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 oracles will be used to derive the prices that the wells are willing to provide in given circumstances, which is distinct from any sort of centralization that's introduced into the system itself. So if let's take a a bean ETH pool, for example, or a bean ETH well, where the ratio of beans to ETH that the well is willing to offer is a function of the price of ether. There is an interesting question as to whether or not the if the source of the price of ether is coming from somewhere else, uh, like Chainlink, for example, uh, whether or not that's acceptable to the silo and. At this point, don't think I have a, a a good answer to share. So that's something that will will be will have to be considered in the future. But the the general idea is that the well should support anything. Okay. Maybe maybe we can maybe discuss a little bit now on the roadmap of wells. So what is the current version that is being you know um, reviewed and we expect it to be launched? The V one. What features can we expect in it? And then what, what, what is the roadmap that you expect? So what will be V2? Um, is there a V3? So 
the thing that is currently under internal review is the core functionality for Wells. And in order for Wells to go live and be integrated with Beanstalk, there still remains uh, pumps. Uh, there has to be a pump implementation completed. And the integration with Beanstalk and the pump has to, has to take place. So it's not that all of the code necessary for a Wells deployment within Beanstalk is uh, done, but the the majority of it is done and is, is getting prepared for audit uh, with Halborn. And due to the composable nature of this, the, the pumps really are a separate piece of code, although they're obviously related. And the Beanstalk integration between the, the pumps and, and the Wells is also separate. But uh, this was the, the, the big chunk and in practice, I mean, maybe it would make sense to call this like a V0. Uh, my understanding is that the only curves uh, or, or pricing curves that will be uh, included in this Wells core launch is a constant product formula, uh, one that takes two assets and another one that takes N assets. And the constant product formula is not the most sophisticated formula that exists for AMMs. And more than that, as we were talking about before, the hope is that people will ultimately deploy custom trading strategies in their own wells. Uh, but the the V0 well should support a bean ETH well on a constant product, uh, which will not require any oracles and therefore will be exposed to some toxic flow. Uh, and that's what V0 looks like. Uh, beyond that, the hope is to have a variety of different pricing functions implemented into Wells and a variety of pump implementations beyond the, the V0 pump implementation that will be used for, for the silo integration. And so over the next couple of months, the hope would be that the sophistication of orders that can be supported by Wells increases. But to some extent, we don't necessarily intend to do all of that development. The hope is that the, the MVP is there such that the integration can happen with Beanstalk. And then all of the architecture is there for people to go on and create their own additional bells and whistles to their orders that they want and create very sophisticated orders if they want. But that's probably not work that it makes sense for us to do and instead just kind of leave it out there for the world. But uh, over time, the hope would be that Wells support all of the the different pricing curves that are popular today in DeFi and then uh, over time, maybe a, a library of different curves or pieces of curves that people are using will get uh, built or aggregated such that people can pretty easily plug and play into, into, into using a bunch of different curves and composing them together uh, for different assets and such. But at this point, uh, really just focused on getting over the finish line uh, to try to get... Uh, a bean ETH pool back up and running within Beanstalk, which from our perspective is very, very important given that currently all of the liquidity that trades against beans has some centralization exposure to it. And ETH really is the the 
the best asset for beans to be trading against on Ethereum. So very, very much uh, focused on getting the, the MVP over the finish line. Okay, and Publius, we we spoke a little bit about pumps and aqueducts, but can you maybe tell us again or summarize what are these and how do they fit in, you know, to the overall well um, architecture? So pumps are every well will include a, a set of pumps, whereby the pumps are the the thing that encodes the data on chain such that the liquidity in the pools can be used by other protocols. So if we go back to the very beginning of class where we were talking about how Uniswap and Curve liquidity pools, factory pools, don't lend themselves to uh, being easily used by other protocols, the concept is that each protocol will may need certain data uh, from a well and the Anytime a well is deployed, it can be deployed with an arbitrary set of pumps that encode the necessary data. Now, the encoding of necessary data on chain is very expensive, and therefore the pump implementations are should only be used if the liquidity needs to be used for a given purpose. And in short, the different pump implementations, uh, pumps can be pretty generalized so you can have like an exponential moving average over different times a geometric moving average over times you could have a like an interest rate pump that that uh determines the interest rate of a given product or something uh or from a given well so there's a a, a wide variety of different things that the pumps can store on chain but the basic concept is that each pump will store or encode a, a, a very specific type of data or, or piece of data on chain. And aqueducts are the aggregation layer for wells, where you may have a well that provides liquidity in USDC, and that USDC can be traded against a bunch of different assets. And then you're going to have a bunch of different wells that all have different orders for different assets uh, along different curves. And at the end of the day, if you're a taker, if you're trying to just trade against liquidity, the only thing really that you want is to know how much can I get for trading my ETH into USDC, for example. And so Aqueducts is the aggregation layer over which uh, the the information or the 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 assets that are stored in wells and their their curves will be aggregated in order for for the for users to be able to understand what is actually available to them, even if what is joined across a variety of different wells, the aqueducts will provide a, a clean interface for the aggregation and querying of that data. Okay. Um, before moving to, to another topic uh, that's out of wells, maybe we'll give it a few minutes and see if any of the audience have you know any more questions about wells. Um, otherwise, otherwise, we can move to another topic. And see that Harry asked, when do we expect the audit to be complete? Uh, we don't know yet. Uh, probably something like four to five or six weeks of audit time once they actually get started. And so that probably puts us at sometime late February. Yeah, because just but, to be uh, clear, the audit yeah. didn't start yet. It's currently in review. 
by the contributors. Correct. And so even if the audit starts tomorrow, uh, which it may or may not, uh, there's a weekly call with Halborn tomorrow. I'm not sure if the devs have, have or will be able to get through all of their review prior to that meeting tomorrow. But even if it starts tomorrow, it's probably going to be at least four weeks or so, maybe six weeks, maybe eight weeks until the the code has been audited by Halborn. And then thereafter, I think there's been some discussion on a code arena audit of Wells and so it's still it's still going to be a little bit of time likely until the the code is deployed on chain and integrated with Beanstalk. And uh, as we also mentioned earlier, there is some other pieces of code necessary for that integration with Beanstalk to be implemented, uh, including pumps. And so we're still probably looking at late Q1, early Q2 for actually uh, deploying this within Beanstalk, but it's this is the completion of the the core wells architecture is very much a a huge step in that direction. Can I see? Um, there is a related related question by Chai Kitty that was posted maybe um, some some time ago, and, and I can read it, uh, and maybe we can see if there's an answer to that, uh, Publius. So the question the question is re with regards to the nms in the sense or or wells in the sense that you know what what will that or the wells be like that are deposited um or like are whitelisted uh, into the silo um and and here here is a question and maybe we can start with an example so let's say that you want to add 1000 you know dollars of of lp into the silo um at some certain you know price price point or price curve that you know that 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 well arbitrary chooses um, and then you know the price of the price of bean um, is 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 different or changes according to you know um, um, because you know the price of bean fluctuates. Let's say um, then you know that that well would uh, uh, offer a different price than you know other wells that are whitelisted in it. How how will beanstalk you know um, take into account you know that when it comes to seniorage and and seeds as well? So the First question is around BDV, and then the second is around seeds per BDV. With regards to the BDV question, the wells themselves will effectively imply a bean price. So if you load up a thousand USDC uh, and you're willing to buy beans at a dollar, uh, the system should credit you with a thousand BDV. Whereas if you're only willing to buy beans at 95 cents, uh, the system should credit you with 95 cents on the dollar. So 950 uh, BDV. Uh, the basic idea here is that the, the value of the liquidity in the pool is, is only good to beanstalk because it's being used to buy beans. And therefore the question is, well, at, at what value are those beans being purchased? Now there is an interesting thing here where in practice the $1,000 buying beans at 95 cents uh, actually buys you more than 1,000 BDV. But the point is that the liquidity is being provided for someone to trade against. And so if you're willing to buy beans at 95 cents, uh, someone that has one bd one bean 
can actually only receive 95 cents of value against that. And so the, it, it, we think it makes sense to credit, uh, have the silo credit depositors of well tokens uh, based on the value that the, the well itself is pricing beans. Now, there's a really interesting question here around, well, what if the what if the well contains multiple assets and is willing to buy it buy and sell multiple assets along multiple curves uh how to handle the seeds think that it probably makes the most sense to have the seeds per bdv be a function of the asset that is actually being held by the liquidity pool uh and and that may change over time. So someone may load up USDC into a well and give it curves over which to buy beans, which then you get a BDV credit for if you deposit it in the silo. But it may also have a, a curve over which that USDC can be exchanged for ETH. And if someone comes and trades against the pool and takes out the USDC and adds ETH to the pool or to the well, uh, at that point, perhaps the seeds per BDV of the well should change to reflect the fact that now USDC is no longer being provided uh, in liquidity against beans, and now it's instead ETH. And so that that type of update to this that would require an update to the silo to support uh, really flexible seeds per BDV. But economically, that would probably be the most logical answer. So is it accurate to say that we expect the silo to award, you know, stock or, you know, account for BDV, not based on the price of the asset that's whitelisted, but the price of the asset plus, or maybe just, you know, what is the depositor willing to trade it against? Uh, probably. Now, I think that this is not a a solved problem don't necessarily feel like this answer is the best possible answer but it is probably sufficient to to launch with but over time the system may become more proficient in pricing the bdv of a given deposit okay we'll pause here for a minute or two uh, again see if any of the audience have um any questions that we would like us to expand on on wells? Otherwise, we'll we'll move to another topic. Okay, Publius in the town hall chat, um, Silo chat, uh, linked to a question by uh, Mixolydian, and and the question um, is with regards to governance. Um, and maybe we've we've discussed uh, this topic before, but here's here's the question, uh, or the ask. Um, so Mixolydian asks, is that should third holders um, have a sway with respect to governance, given that they, you know, provided or helped uh, uh, support or see the current liquidity. So, from our perspective, the fertilizer holders are very similar to pod holders in the sense that they are creditors of Beanstalk. They have lent assets to Beanstalk and are now waiting to be paid back. And from a game theory perspective, it's 
probably suboptimal for creditors to be able to participate in governance because they are owed something by the system. And in particular, uh, I mean, the, the, the question is, who should govern Beanstalk? Uh, in a perfect world, Beanstalk wouldn't need any governance, but that's that's not reality. And so uh, amongst the shareholders in the system, you have your creditors and you have your depositors. And unlike the creditors, which have already lent their assets to Beanstalk, and while they can sell their assets on the secondary market, the concept is they are waiting for repayment from the system. Uh, depositors already have the ability to leave the system at any time. And therefore, the expectation is that the depositors uh, are much less likely to vote for something that is short-term beneficial to printing to repay debt, but long-term detrimental to the system, as opposed to if you allow creditors to participate in governance, uh, it's not unreasonable to think that at some point the the creditors will vote to have the system do something that that ultimately gets gets the creditors paid back sooner, but compromises the integrity or the long term sustainability of Beanstalk. And so, the basic point is that while it's true that fertilizer holders have uh, been the most recent, uh, or I guess when you consider size. Uh, have been the most recent participants in in the system, and there is some desire to ensure that the participants in the system are able to uh, affect control over it in a reasonable way. Uh, the The issue is that the incentives around being a fur holder or being a pot holder make it such that it's it's un, un, unreasonable to expect uh, the, the creditors to to be able to vote. Uh, with a long-term success of Beanstalk in mind. And the again, the, the, the difference in, in all cases, the stockholders, the potholders, the fertholders, everyone has some expectation of future returns from the system. But the thing that separates stockholders from the creditors is that stockholders can leave the system at any time with their full value, as opposed to lenders are actually waiting for the system to grow in order to receive that value. So uh, primarily it's an incentive problem where it, it doesn't really make sense for Beanstalk to give creditors uh, the opportunity to vote in governance because that would that would potentially jeopardize the integrity of the system if the creditors were voting to ensure repayment in the short term uh, at, the, at the cost of long-term sustainability. And the the stock system really emphasizes that long-term mindset amongst depositors where the primary reason to stay in the system is uh long-term upside right if you if if the the reason to be in the silo is just short-term exposure uh the stock system is less likely to have a meaningful effect on 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 use of the silo in general, as opposed to where where the stock system really shines is over longer periods of time. And so, given that the goal is for Beanstalk to be able to exist in all 
market conditions over all periods of time, the it's important that the voters uh, from a, an economics perspective are also aligned with that with that incentive. And uh, so it's a combination of you don't want creditors voting and the people that you do want voting or, or have voting are already from an incentive perspective long-term aligned with the protocol, or at least should be. Okay, and Guy expands on, on this question and asks, do you think that the concept of being owed by Beanstalk is somewhat true for unripe assets as well, although they aren't creditors per se? So while it's true that unripe depositors could withdraw at any time, they feel, uh, or Guy feels, that the argument that they could or would vote on the short-term interest in mind is also true to some extent. Definitely. It's definitely true, and the the current setup of Beanstalk is unique in that way, in that a lot of the stockholders are also owed something by the system, but yeah, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. It's just a at scale, that's not the way the system should work. Uh, and so, yeah, we kind of have to just deal with the current situation as it is, but keep in mind what, what the optimal situation is at the same time. But it is important to acknowledge right now, Beanstalk basically owes all, all participants. Publius, would you say that this to an extent was addressed by scaling stock, hence, you know, unripe um, holders, stock changes? Um, and it wasn't, you know, just equal to what was the amount uh, previously. Uh, I don't think it was a. It's a. It's a. It's an answer to it, but it is a factor that helps mitigate this issue. But it's certainly still there. Okay. All right. We have five minutes um, until the hour. Uh, we'll 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 pause here and see if, if folks or the audience have any any other questions. Okay, before ending this class, um, I see that we had a relatively good turnout uh, in today's today's uh, timing. Um, so, to those who are with us, if you think or you prefer this timing over you know the regular uh, time that we we schedule class, please let us know, and you know maybe we can we can uh, we can have this time to be the permanent one. Otherwise, thank you all for joining us today, and Publius, as always, thank you for taking the time to answer to answer all of these questions. See you next week. Thanks, man.